Calling all Swifties and champions of change, Like a Girl Media is rolling out the red carpet for you with our Thrive Like a Girl contest. We're all about celebrating powerful women leaders who inspire us to dream big and push boundaries. And who embodies that spirit more than Taylor Swift herself? Here's your chance to see her live in concert. We're giving away two tickets to Taylor Swift's show in London on Saturday, June 22nd. Imagine being part of the magic, all thanks to Like a Girl Media. Entering is easy. Subscribe, share, and show us which episodes inspired you the most. Visit our website or check our social media for all the details. Don't just dream it, be it. Thrive like a girl and make this summer unforgettable. Contest opens globally. Voidware prohibited. Must be 18 or older to enter. No purchase necessary. Subscribe and share with hashtag thrive like a girl and tag us at like a girl underscore media for entry. Unlimited entries means unlimited chances. Winner chosen at random after contest closes May 20th, 2024. We'll be notified via DM. Make sure your profiles are not private. Check full rules on our site. This is your shot to see Taylor Swift live. Don't miss it. Welcome to the Hit Like a Girl podcast. This is High Tea with Grace, where we spill the tea on HIT. I'm very excited to introduce you to Elise Cole Grant, who is the CIO of IMSNY in New York City. It's two large behavioral health networks that cover 160,000 patient lives and might even be more than that at this point. Elise, thanks so much for joining us. Hi, Grace. I'm so happy to be here. In fact, I have a little secret that I've been doing a few podcasts recording lately, and I think I'm most excited about this one. Um, being on Hit Like a Girl just resonates with me, and I think we're going to have a lot of fun today. Yes, absolutely. And now Elise and I met in person at Hims. She was speaking there, and I was just so inspired by her, and I know you will be too. So tell us all about the uphill battle mental health systems have experienced in their interoperability journey. Uh, so the uphill battle for mental health agencies um, has been a struggle, right? And I used to work at New York Health Collaborative on the Shiny, which is the State Health Information Network of New York. And I used the word interoperability. One time I counted in my emails, I used the word interoperability 43 times. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> that makes sense no. for <laughs> I don't think I knew what the word interoperability meant until I was 24 years old and started at this company. Wow. So from <laughs> to go from not using a word to using it 43 times in one day is a little crazy. And, you know, um, I think we use it a lot in the physical health world, but I want to let the audience know that interoperability is very new to the mental health world. Wow. And, wow. And, you know, I think I, that is. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's really new. And I think that we go off a lot of assumptions that mental health agencies and the data that we produce are interoperable to the physical health world. And I, and I go back to this model, which is the technology adoption cycle model. And it's an oldie but goodie. Basically, it's broken out into kind of two markets. You have your early market and your mainstream market. And this is how kind of products view um, how they're going to launch their product, what the utilization is going to be, what the engagement of their intended consumers are going to be. 
And in that early market, you have the innovators and the early adopters. Yeah. These are the folks that are, you know, quick to use the technology. They're the first ones in the door when the iPhone comes out. They're standing in line. They don't exactly know what it means. They, you don't need to connect the dots with them. Uh, they just are eager to use the product, right? Then you have the mainstream market, which are broken out of, of three categories. You have your early majority, your late majority, and your last. Your early majority are the folks that you might have to help them connect the dots a bit. They sort of get the hype, but they're kind of like, you know, I'm okay with my flip phone. I'll wait for a second. Let's see how this whole, you know, iPhone thing goes. And then maybe I'll, you know, get in line and purchase. The then you have the late majority, which are the ones that are really forced to use the new that are forced to use the iPhone. They're the ones who are like, all right, well, I guess I'm not going to be able to FaceTime my grandkids. Um, maybe I want to get on board. They're the ones whose phone doesn't work, and they have to then go and purchase that iPhone. Then you have the laggards, which are the ones that are like, you know what? Just send me a card at Christmas. I'll see my <laughs> grandchildren then. And they usually never get on board. Yeah. And when I, when I think about interoperability, I think that in the rest of the world, we are in that late majority phase. Now, yeah. There's a lot of quality initiatives we can do. We can definitely work on interoperating systems. But in terms of like the buy-in and the adoption, I would argue we're in that late majority phase. For mental health, we are still very much in that early market that's built up off of innovators and early adopters. Wow. I think we forget that because when we're communicating, we're going on this assumption that everyone's in this late majority, everyone's on board, and the mental health agencies are like just getting started. Wow. Do you think that's because they weren't included in some, some of like the meaningful use uh, things that came out or why do you think that is? I'm glad you brought up meaningful use. I yeah. think this goes back uh, when you look back in history of when and where and how mental health, behavioral health agencies were included in this initiative. Now, I, I, I know you're familiar with Meaningful Use. Do you think our listeners are all familiar with Meaningful Use? Yeah, you can give a brief background. Actually, it could be really useful for the folks that don't know. <laughs> yeah, it's basically like a government. Uh, it was a government initiative. Billions of dollars were kicked into getting hospitals and primary care practices Um up on an electronic health system. So switching from paper to electronic, right? And a lot of money was poured into this. There were a lot of initiatives and um, man, woman power put into helping providers get on board and switch from paper to electronic. Now that went on for years. Uh, the providers who were eligible for that funding were not mental health providers. They were not your wow. case managers, your licensed mm -hmm. social workers, your peer support advocates. Um, forgot if psychiatrists were included, perhaps, but only just a few. Um, and so these folks got on board with an electronic health record system. And then the next clear phase was interoperability. Mental health agencies have just started to really be able to utilize electronic health record systems. And even the ones that they're utilizing are not all ONC certified, which that's the type of system or the accreditation of the system you have to use in order to be interoperable. 
Oh, so wow. That's even worse. <laughs> oh, yeah. No. And yeah. I will say New York is pretty ahead of the game, um, which is great for New York. But even then, I would say a good about 20 percent of our mental health agencies are still not on a you know certified EHR. And that's New York. And we're fairly progressive in these areas. I can't imagine what it looks like in other states. Um, but that means that, you know, agencies are still getting over the hump of utilizing their EHR to its fullest capability and figuring out how to put data in the right field so that way it can produce meaningful information. Yes, truly. So they're trying to figure out, like you said, where do I put the data so that I can make sure that we can use the data, you know, and make sure it's in the right place so I can get the right stuff from it. Is that kind of what you're saying? I mean, absolutely. And even, yeah. you know, these, the staff members, the providers, they go to school to work with individuals that suffer yeah. from severe mental illness. I mean, that's the industry mm -hmm. that I mostly cater to is uh, the Medicaid population, which is strongly built up of individuals with mental illness and SMI, severe mental illness. So you're talking about providers who are not just taking your blood work and not to diminish PCPs in any way, shape or form. They're not taking your blood work and asking you like what, you know, how much you weigh, are you a smoker, are you not? These are providers that are asking you if you have a roof over your head tonight. Yeah, are asking, severely nuanced in that you need every aspect, every social determinant of health possible to figure out the whole patient. Yeah. I mean, absolutely, right? Or have you eaten breakfast? Has your daughter, has your baby eaten dinner last night? Um, you know, when were, were you sexually abused? Were, you know, are you living with your parents? Do you have parents? Um, it, are you suicidal, right? These are really, really private conversations that makes it hard for a provider to take themselves away from being in that moment with the person that needs mm -hmm. them the most and think, oh, I should probably put suicidal in this form, in this field right here and have not eaten here and is in the system because their parents abandoned them here. I mean, how do you, you know, take yourself away and then think about where you put those really important pieces of information um, into a structured format? And you yeah. kind of hit you kind of hit it on the head is where I wanted to go with this is, you know, the majority or the heart of the information lives in the case. Notes. Mm -hmm. And that's unstructured, unstandardized information. And they write it in one big case note. Right. And that's really the heart of um, of the data that we're dealing with when it comes to the population that we serve. So how do you pull that information out of the case notes and put it into meaningful structured fields. So that way you can send it and you can officially interoperate with another system and you guys can eventually speak back and forth. We're just, we're not there. The hype of this conversation is here, but we have a lot more work to do to get there. So for CIO as IMSNY, you oversee the implementation and utilization of data analytic business intelligence platforms across these two big health, uh, behavioral health networks. Um, you know, in your job while you're doing that, what type of data is most impactful for, you know, health systems like yours to be tracking? Yeah. So first of all, you explained it 
like beautifully. Um, I've been trying to tell my parents this for three years. So being a CIO uh, and building data analytic platforms that cater to the mental health population is challenging because you're dealing with data, like you mentioned, right? That's unstructured. And you're also dealing with this kind of culture change that providers mm -hmm. are going mm -hmm. through of how do I be a provider and be there in the moment with my patient, but yet also record the absolutely necessary information that's meaningful to create, you know, um, actionable reports. The data that we are looking at right now, I mentioned the case notes, and yeah. that's a struggle because there's a lot of information in there. And what information do you choose to pull out or can you pull out? Um, I, we start, I've started to look at natural language processing technology. Mm -hmm. It's a form mm -hmm. of um, artificial intelligence that I think is very promising in the years to come to help providers kind of pull out those words and those phrases in the case notes to put in a structured field and make um, meaningful and actionable reports out of that. An another few items that we're looking at um, that our providers are have initiatives around is suicide prevention. You know, what are some of the trigger words that are happening in these therapy sessions? Um, is this person is, is this person high risk? Have they um, attempted suicide before? How many inpatient psychiatric units have they been in in the last three years? And has that gone up? Has that gone down? Um, some other items that we are looking at that kind of relate more to the physical health world um, are metabolic screening. So a lot of our patients are at high risk for diabetes because of social determinants and health factors, right? The food they eat, where they live, their lifestyle, and so on and so forth. So um, we are really wrapping some initiatives around that in terms of has your, has your patient received a screening? What is the result of that screening? And what is your response to that screening? Many times that screening happens at outside facilities. So right now mm -hmm. we are pooling the information from various HIEs, health information exchanges, to then provide that data to our provider agencies. So that way they can go. That is so impactful for your providers to be able to have access to the data that's going on. Say they get seen at the hospital, et cetera. They can see exactly what went on there. Wow, that's amazing. And that must be new. Has it been new since the pandemic started? Like when has when did this start happening? It depends on who you ask. If you ask like the <laughs> physical health world, they'll be like, oh, we've been doing this for a while. Yeah. Uh, but that's not really the case. Th this was fairly new. Um, we just started doing this. We kind of hunkered down uh, once the pandemic started to connect uh, the health information exchange data sources into our data analytic infrastructure. So this is very new. Before this data connection, providers were asking their patients, their consumers, right? Um, when was your last screening? And I mean, that's self-reported data. And when a person has so many other things to worry about, like transportation, like housing, are they going to re really remember if they, when their last screening was? I mean, for, for me, you, I can barely call the dentist myself because I'm just too busy, right? And I haven't seen the dentist in like 
two years, which is crazy. Mm -hmm. So to expect someone who's dealing with much more severe circumstances than I'm dealing with, you you can't really expect them to go see that. Yeah. And to rely on that unreliable data in many ways, like straight from their mouths, like at the time where they're in a critical situation where it could be life and death, it can be figuring out the diagnosis first, waiting another six months or something, you know, it's it's really so much more, even more critical at that moment to have that right data um just straight from instead of playing telephone <laughs> like <laughs> exactly and a lot of these consumers you know they don't have cell phones new yeah. york mm-hmm. new yorkers do we were surprised actually we did a survey and about um 80 of medicaid individuals did have cell phones um wow. but they lose them a lot they come and go so it's hard to kind of keep track of these individuals which is what makes mental health agencies so crucial because we're the ones providing them with community-based services. So we see these individuals a lot more than the doctors see them or more than even the hospitals see them because we're providing services like housing, like food, like clinical services or substance use treatment services. So it's almost, don't even get me into patient attribution, but like when we go into patient attribution, it almost makes sense that the patients and consumers are attributed to their case manager because they see their case manager much more than they see their primary care provider. Oh, the that's so care. true. They yeah. might see them once a week, even sometimes yeah. in serious cases, or maybe even every day if they're in like a yeah. group setting or you're right, it's it's far more regular. And, and for their primary care physician or whatever other physician they have to be able to get your data too is very useful, I'm sure. So they can say, oh, okay, this may be one of the reasons for IBS or whatever <laughs> other physical symptoms could be from the mental health. Absolutely. And I think that, you know, it, it, it's not a role of a primary care provider to be a care manager in any mm-hmm. way, shape or form. I think they feel overwhelmed of all the because of this patient attribution model that patients are attributed to primary care providers. And that's kind of uh, that's a big wraparound for reimbursement models uh, for mm-hmm. insurance companies or Medicaid managed care organizations. Um, but I think they feel an overwhelming sense of, oh, my God, I have to do so much more in this short little 20 minute visit with my client and they shouldn't be responsible for everything. Uh, you know, that's what the mental health agencies are here for. And you made a good point when you said that they might want data from those mental health agencies. That's where going back to what we were talking about the technology adoption life cycle for interoperability that's where we're very much in the early market because we aren't necessarily sending that data back to the hospitals, back to the primary care providers just yet. Yeah. And that's probably, I guess, a role where the HIE can help with that, you know, depending on how, how that relationship works. Very interesting, very cool stuff. So I'm wondering, you know, uh, you talked about, you know, particular gaps in care that, that are often things that you can, that can help be closed through data and analytics. We talked about diabetes and, and that impact. Are there any other particular gaps in care um, that are being closed now uh, using data and analytics? Yeah. Um, so I would say we're trying to target no-show rates. Um, oh, yeah. There is a huge issue with no-shows in the mental health community because um, even more so in New York City, actually, than upstate, I think New York City is very distracting. And um, even though transportation is 
great. We're talking about a lot of individuals who might be outside those subway lines that have a really hard time getting to their appointment. Um, there are other, you know, issues that come up in terms of work-related scheduling, um, child care, and so on and so forth. And like the the change of phone numbers and whatnot, that no-show rates are a huge issue in our community. And we've been really trying to figure out, okay, how can we reduce the no-show rates? Um, mm -hmm. How can we be more proactive in calling and reminding patients to come to their appointment? Now, I just, I told you, I just got my hair blown out um, before this call. And, you know, I received a text message reminder about my blowout. Wow. And Therefore, I was only five minutes late instead of 10 minutes late. Yeah, These so getting those text reminders can be critical to, to keep prevent those no-shows. Uh, yes, I mean, and it, we're not talking about data analytics here. We're talking about kind of more product functionality. But yeah. the fact mm -hmm. that an individual who suffers from substance use and is maybe suicidal, and we can't do so much as send a text message reminder of their appointment. Mm -hmm. I mean, like, come on, we're mm -hmm. we're just so far behind the eight ball, and that's that's probably more related on the EHR side of things. And I don't want to throw my behavioral health EHR vendors <laughs> under the bus because I love most of them mm -hmm. um, or have a good relationship with most of them. But it's just we're looking at proactive ways to leverage emerging technologies to really um, try to get. An individual to Now, when we talk about analytics, um, we are starting to pull in history of individuals who have missed their appointment more than three, four, five times to kind of follow the trend of, okay, this individual is at risk of being a no-show. Um, we should probably target them and put a little more communication and kind of hand-holding to get them to their appointment. Wow, that's amazing. I, I, I would be miss if I didn't mention telehealth is a big part of this mm -hmm. as well. Mm -hmm. um, we did a study, I wish I had the date in front of me, is that the no-show rate did decrease significantly during the pandemic because of telehealth. Um, oh, people could do it from home, so they didn't miss. People could do it from home. And, you know, we did a survey that... We asked folks, we did a survey and we surveyed 429 severely mentally uh, patients with severe mental illness in the Bronx. And the main barrier to care was transportation. And this was a unstructured field. We didn't even ask them to like check this off. We asked them to just write it in. It was transportation, lack of motivation. Um, but transportation was a big one. And so telehealth, uh, really filled in that gap and because you could just have your appointment from the comfort of your own home or whatever, wherever you are residing at that time. Yeah. How did your providers transition to telehealth? I know that must have been kind of tricky transitioning from the in-person care to the telehealth care. And, you know, uh, what was that transition like for them? Well, I know we had to drop everything um, and look at telehealth. So, what we did is we halted all the other projects we were working on and said, let's evaluate some telehealth solutions. So a week after New York City got shut down, I contacted every telehealth vendor I could find, did a quick demo um, with each of them, wrote up a report. I can send it to you to share with um, wow. the listeners. 
mm-hmm. of about 18 telehealth solutions. And then we narrowed it down to two. Now, mental health agencies don't have a lot of money. This is nothing new. We don't have a, we don't have a lot of funding. There's not a lot of um, value-based contracts that are directly for mental health agencies. And so we had to look at two cheap solutions. Uh, we ended up suggesting Doxy.me and Zoom. And so actually it's Doxy.me and Zoom, not Doxy.me, mm-hmm. another email. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and these were solutions that our provider agencies use. We negotiated a discount with them. And then we sent off about, I think we administered to date over 600 licenses, 600 oh, telehealth wow. licenses to yeah. our providers. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, it was a, again, a culture change, right? Because mm-hmm. this is some of the topics that they discuss with their patients are very sensitive, but um, patients really got on board with it very pretty quickly and providers were forced to use it very quickly. And, it spread. And, you know, there, there were some issues. There's some bandwidth issues, which is actually why as part of this evaluation, we received feedback directly from providers and patients, consumers, asking them about what we should look for in a solution. And as oh, part of that, that's feedback. amazing that you did that to get their feedback before diving yes. into one. Yeah. What's going to be easiest for you to use and what will you actually use? <laughs> exactly. And it's amazing how many people don't do that. How many people mm-hmm. don't ask their consumers like what they actually want to use at the end of the day. Mm-hmm. That's how we found out about this bandwidth issue that they were like, hey, I only have so much data on my phone. I really don't want to use this data to have a telehealth visit. I'd much rather use it to see uh, my sister's kids, right, on FaceTime. And so we picked those two solutions because they didn't use as much data when you had that video conferencing. Brilliant. That makes a ton of sense. Wow. Thank you so much for sharing that with me. That's so fascinating. And I'm sure our listeners will find that really interesting. Um, You know, I'm wondering... If you could give other mental health systems one piece of advice, you know, regarding this interoperability, data analytics, HIT journey, um, what would that one piece of advice be? Trust the process. (laughs) Trust the data process. It's really hard and excruciating. And when we say the word interoperability, it makes it seem so simple, but it's everything but that. Uh, One of our agencies, The Bridge, who's located in New York City, they formed a committee that meets twice a week, and it involves a lot of um, mid-level management that are part of various departments, quality, data, um, clinical initiatives, and they meet twice a month to discuss all of their different initiatives and really try to kind of do some deep digging into their data to make sure that each data element they're capturing aligns up with those clinical initiatives. Wow. Doesn't seem so like, it doesn't seem like a new phenomenon, but so many agencies don't do that. And you really got to talk internally to your agency and trust the data process because you're going to go down some rabbit holes and not find what you're looking for. And then you have to start over And that's kind of what happened. You're not just going to get this beautiful dashboard that tells you everything you want in a couple of weeks. It's 
It takes a while to get there and there's a lot of data cleaning and you might have to put your headphones on and be in Excel for a couple of days, but, um, you know, trust the process and you'll get there. Yeah, that's very interesting. Do you work with a data, data analytics provider that helps you kind of do this process? Oh yeah. So we have our population health management tool, which is powered by Arcadia. Um, I, love working with Arcadia. We were one of their first behavioral health um, networks to join. So, you know, they've been really open in sort of helping us and us helping them navigate through the behavioral health data to produce meaningful reports. And really what they help us with is connecting to various data sources and displaying it in a meaningful way to our agencies. Oh, that's really fascinating. So I want to dive now into a little personal question. A little birdie told me that you were a 2017 silver, silver medalist world champion bodybuilder. <laughs> you can actually hit like a girl. So tell me hit like a girl audience about this journey that got you to that point. You're not only like a data champion in the behavioral health <laughs> network, but you are a bodybuilding champion. <laughs> So, yeah, so the quote, trust the process, I actually um, heard that quote the first time from my trainer as I was training for my bodybuilding competitions is he'd always say, trust the process, trust the process. And I'd be on the treadmill, not the treadmill, the Stairmaster. I would live on the Stairmaster wow. in a big oversized sweatshirt uh, with my hoodie up at 6 a.m. in the morning and I just be like, trust the process. What process am I supposed to trust? Like, it was so frustrating to hear trust the process because you're in it day in and day out. <laughs> I was sweating my butt off in the gym twice a day. Would get there at maybe 5.30 in the morning, leave at 8.30 in time to get to work by nine and then go back to the gym at about 7 p.m. and then get home at around, you know, 9.30 p.m., 10, and then just start it again. Um, lifting a lot of weights, posing practice, um, in my travels to and from the gym, I would eat fish and asparagus and more fish and eggs and sweet potato. And those were probably the four main, um, food items that I would eat uh, about six weeks before I got on stage. And, um, have you ever eaten cold fish? <laughs> no, I mean, other than sushi, but not like cold fish. <laughs> I would eat like cold codfish on my way back from the gym and on my way to the gym, because you have to get something in your body within 30 minutes after you work out. And so that the words trust the process were just playing in my head. And I did not understand that term until it became stage day where you're getting ready and backstage. And it's just a whole nother world. You have all of these hand bodies that are, you know, pumping weights and getting ready to get on stage where it really, it's not until that day where it really comes together and your body transforms into a statue like that. <laughs> and that's when, and that's when I finally put it together. And I was like, oh, I just have to trust the process to get here. Mm. And for the first time, I recently, you know, I, I spoke at the Bridges meeting that I was referring to. It was the first time I ever compared my bodybuilding pro my bodybuilding journey to the data journey. Oh. <laughs> I'm like, so 
stress. I mean, it's an uphill battle. I mean, you weren't given any, you know, incentives. You were kind of thrown into the deep end with uh, a small budget, like do what you can with what you have. And yeah, just I can't imagine. So what were some of the comparisons that you said in that talk? Well, you know, on stage day, when your body looks like a, I can't even say a model because I don't want associate. I don't want to associate beauty with slenderness and you know makeup. I want to really associate beauty with strong muscles, hit like a girl. You're strong. You're kind okay. of challenging Absolutely. the concept. Absolutely, yes. Yeah, mm-hmm. you're challenging the concept of beauty. Um, but when you're on stage, they see this masterpiece. And when you have a data visualization and you're thinking about AI, you're thinking about this masterpiece, this beautiful data set where it's going to show you every report and geomap every single service of every single patient that was within that zip code and, you know, then layer on some predictive analytics and it tells you exactly what to do. Um, It's, you know, behind that, beautiful visual behind that um, behind that physique that I had on stage were hours and hours and countless hours working mm-hmm. to get there, right? Working to present on this one day. Um, and so that's kind of my comparison is- I have goosebumps right now. Like just thinking of the hours of just developing these algorithms and sifting through the data and working through so- with solution providers to just figure this thing out. And the, you, you can't, it's hard to see the beauty at the end that will come yeah, from all that hard work that you guys are doing right now. And it's really very interesting to think of it that way. Yeah. And, you know, when you look at your when I looked at my physique every day, I, I didn't see a huge change. It's like, a, you know, weight loss journey or whatever. If you're growing your hair long, you don't see a change because you're looking at yourself every day when you're in the trenches and running those algorithms. You don't necessarily see a change every day. Right. And it can get really frustrating. And to communicate that to other people, to executives or to staff and saying, hey, we're just not there yet. Um, you know, communicating to my friends that, hey, I can't go out tonight. Hey, I, I really just can't eat that apple because should I eat that apple or should I eat this whole piece of broccoli or fish like that? You know, it, it's hard yeah. to translate that when you're in the trenches. And then at the end of the day, people understand when it's, you know, time to perform. People understand when they see that beautiful data visualization. But um, the communication of the journey is, is hard. So as we're finishing this conversation off, right, I have one last question for you. Uh, do you have any advice for women in healthcare or health IT, you know, women that are thinking of going into this industry, uh, any advice you can give them? My advice would be get into this industry now. Mm-hmm. And if they don't give you a seat at the table, pull up a folding chair. That is a quote from Shirley Chisholm, which she was the first black woman elected to the United States Congress. And it's probably my favorite quote because I think it just resonates with women who are trying to climb up the ladder and get themselves positions in technology. And you really, you really just got to pull up a folding chair. I love it. That is such great advice. Thank you so much, Elise. And before I forget, 
tell us what tea you brought with you today, if you happen to bring some tea with you. Oh, my tea. Of course I brought some tea. Um, So, cheers. (laughs) So, the tea I chose to drink today is called Mother's Milk Tea. I was pregnant during the pandemic. I had my little pandemic baby. And I think it just goes to show you that women are so strong and they really rule the world. They like create the world and rule the world. (laughs) They create the world. And I mean, even in positions, there's a lot of things that happen that go unnoticed. Have you ever asked the father or the husband to pack a baby's suitcase for a week? And I doubt that many women have even tried to or would even risk that because it just goes to show you that women are very good. Not that men are, but women are very good at not only are we nurturing, but just thinking of all those details that go very unnoticed, which yeah, predicting think, those needs. Yes. Yes. Mm-hmm. Predicting. Great way to tie in that predictive mm-hmm. analytics into yeah. this conversation. We have our own predictive analytics engine. <laughs> oh boy, do we. I mean, my mm-hmm. son would, my um, fiance would have my son live off bananas if he could. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's, uh, you know, I think that we have a really, you're right. We have a very nice way of predicting what can happen and planning and pre-planning for that. So I think that's even more important that women get a seat at the technology table. I love that. Thank you so much for sharing with us. And now where can our listeners find you online? Active on LinkedIn. So feel free to connect with me. I am happy um, to message you back and set up any types of conversations that you're interested in. My LinkedIn, you can find me under my name, Elise, E-L-I-S-E, and then Cole. Grant, K-O-H-L hyphen G-R-A-N-T. Um, I also have a Twitter, EKG1029. I'm not as active on Twitter as I probably should be. That might change, but I'll definitely be around on LinkedIn if anyone wants to message me. Well, thank you so much, Elise, and thanks for joining us. And thank you folks for joining us. Check out the Hit Like a Girl podcast and YouTube page for more great interviews like this one today. Cheers. Like a Girl Media is more than a media network. It's a community. We want to meet you and amplify your voice and the voices of outstanding women innovating in healthcare. Interested in starting your own podcast or hosting an event near you? Connect with us online or in person. We're here to support and empower you. 